we always call it a Trojan horse film. Like on the outside is entertainment. It's beautiful. But if you were, if you look inside, maybe there's more to be found. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a woman begins to suspect there are sinister happenings at her husband's workplace in director Olivia Wilde's thriller, Don't Worry, Darling. The film follows couple Alice and Jack, who live in a utopian community for the workers of a top-secret project. But when cracks in her supposedly idyllic life begin to appear— Alice can't help questioning exactly what is really going on in this paradise. In addition to Don't Worry, Darling, Wilde's directorial credits include the feature film Booksmart. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Wilde spoke with director Reed Morano about filming Don't Worry, Darling. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you for this movie. Oh, thank you for watching it. Thank you guys for coming out and watching it on a Tuesday night. I really appreciate it. You could be anywhere. Very exciting. I've come to this theater so many times to watch other directors. So this is like a real thrill for me. I'm very honored. Yeah, and I'm actually excited to do this so I can ask some questions that I always want people to ask directors. So... um, yeah, I, uh, well, I have to say, one of the most striking things I think about the movie, besides the performances, the cinematography, and this is just going right into something that is not the first thing you normally ask about, but I'm really curious. I felt like the sound and the sound design and the music were almost trading hands a lot of times where the music was becoming the the score was becoming sound design and the sound design was becoming score and I just thought it just was so immersive for me and very (laughs) stressful and disturbing (laughs) at all the moments that I imagine you would have wanted it to be and I just wanted to hear what was the inspiration like you know the composer and the sound designer and how how when did it all like occur to you and you know yeah first of all i feel for some context one of the reasons i wanted to become a director is because i acted in a movie that reed directed called meadowland and watching her direct and also be the cinematographer on that film uh was a huge moment for me and made me really want to have this job. But also you love to use sound and your use of music. So I'm not surprised that that's something that that you would ask about. And I'm really happy to talk about it. But uh, on this one, yeah, I had this amazing team. So Skip Leavse, who's an incredible sound mixer, was part of the head of our re-record team here in New York. And he who he also uh, did my last film, Booksmart, and this was so completely different. But I felt like the first day I said to Skip, now we get to play because this film was in so many ways more abstract and that sound could become this character and we could have a lot of fun with it. And to continue to 
really take risks. So we played with so many different ways to use the score, the music and the effects. And of course, it's a big reason I really want people to see it in a theater, like all of us always do. But sound for this, like, of course, makes such a huge difference. So much of it is like that subliminal rumble that is um, obviously completely imperceptible on an iPad. (laughs) Um, But I also had an incredible uh, composer, John Powell, who actually came on later in the process. I switched composers mid mid production and it wasn't because anything went horribly wrong. It was just that I realized that the film needed a different kind of texture. And of course that was like terrifying because I was like, what am I going to do? I've been working with this other person's work for a while and with this temp and, and I was terrified of what would happen. And actually the experience was interesting because the film was largely locked And John Powell sat and watched it without any music or sound effects. And his feedback at that point was really surprising. He said, I think this movie is a love story. And I think you can allow for more emotion without worrying about being overly earnest. Because I was so worried that earnestness in the music would uh, combine with the powerful performances and the emotional performances would end up being like a hat on a hat and really overly saccharine. And instead he, um, kind of coaxed me to the water. Like he brought me into like this, you know, the, the ability to create those kind of romantic themes and the really minimal string themes. And then we used a lot of human voices so that it could become really primal and organic. And I mean, that process was so, so cool. But it was a real joy to to understand what character all of those sounds and the, the music could play that felt so essential to the story and that sometimes to not have to rely on dialogue or even the visuals in some moments to communicate. It was like just allow people to kind of feel the emotions almost subconsciously because of sound. Yeah, I loved it. And I thought that the score also, while doing some things that were seemingly kind of like experimental, also had a very classic feeling to it. You know, at certain moments, maybe, you know, it it kind of felt really the two things worked very well together and would, you know, you normally wouldn't expect to be able to blend that. And it really was like seamless, I felt, in the storytelling and it really amplified the tension. It's already tense as it is, but it makes it to a point where it's like, you know, you want the audience to have an experience when they're watching your movie. And I felt like I really was like properly disturbed when, you know, due to that. Good. I'm so happy to disturb you. (laughs) Me, you always disturb me. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about when you just said, uh, when you were talking about how halfway through you kind of had to switch composers because of something you realized that the texture of the film had changed, I actually was... One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, was there a moment, like a surprising moment throughout the whole process, whether it was, you know, on, you know, during production or prep or whatever it was, that sort of changed almost the path for you a little bit, like almost like an aha moment or a revelatory kind of, it could even be like something that happened in a pivotal scene that went completely differently than you Mm -hmm. had imagined in your head. Yeah, I feel like we had a series of experiences like that. Um, One scene, when we were shooting the scene in the, um, what we call the dollhouse, the big kind of weird fascist rally gala scene, 
we had written the scene to really be about Chris Pine's character, Frank, you know, giving this, this speech and that Harry's character, Jack would, would be, um, inspired by it, but we didn't know it would get to the level that it got, that it got to the real kind of like the fervor of the, whose world is it ours? Whose world is it ours? And he got so into that moment. We all realized at the monitor, we were like, oh, this is the moment everything changes for that character. This is, this is changing the kind of shape of the film and the map of that character. And actually we ended up having to kind of reshape large sections of the film as you always do. And without that at that moment, it kind of wouldn't have worked. It was, it was a series of discoveries, some based on, you know, shooting this in COVID, which I don't know how many people here shot a movie in COVID, but as if you did, you understand it was a real journey. And there were times when we had to rethink large portions of, of the script. So it was a discovery every time. There was also, you know, the moment of starting the the work in editorial, my editor, Afonso Concavas, who's amazing, he was the one who said, I think we should let the movie be really kind of seductive in the beginning in terms of like letting the world be really vibrant and um, pleasant. It, the movie used to start with like much more sinister tones in the beginning. The dancers appeared in the very first shot. And he was the one who said, let it just be something that lures us in and let the sinister reality bubble up later. Um, and of course, my panic was like, well, then will it be will it be too boring in the beginning? Do we need to bring those kind of more shocking elements in early? And he allowed me to have the confidence to kind of be more patient. So I, I felt like it was a series of discoveries based on really smart people around me, kind of allowing me to let the movie speak to us and allow it to show us what it was actually becoming, which is always a total surprise. I mean, that's what I find, too. It's such a, a question that it's like the whole movie. I feel like everything I've ever worked on, it's like, you know, we it changes. Yeah. It just evolves. And um, also, like, I guess kind of in line with that, I feel like on everything, everything I've directed, I learn so many new things, not just from my my department heads and my crew and the people that are surrounding me, but also from the actors and there's I think in my mind scenes that have been saved not just by the actor's performance but by something they reminded me of or maybe brought to my attention either before you know before we shot something or and I'm just wondering if you had any moments like that with any of the actors on set oh yeah I mean I really feel like you know, like 30% of the screenwriting process is the is comes from the actors and that the the kind of recipe of the screenplay isn't really complete until they come on and give it their own interpretation. But then as you're saying throughout production, they continue if they're great, like these guys were, they continue to come up with great ideas. And there were so many moments. I mean, Florence gave so many of these kind of little idiosyncrasies to her character, little moments, a lot of them having to do with the relationship between them, which I wanted to be really nuanced to feel, you know, and layered to feel authentic because if their relationship felt authentic to the audience, then they would believe in them and they would invest in them. And then the shock would hopefully be more devastating, but that even when you know their reality, you would be heartbroken by, by it, that it wouldn't feel um, arbitrary as a pairing. And so there were little moments like they came up with the lip pinching moment that I became to me, 
so essential. Little moments like that that I thought, oh, now we can use that as something that kind of triggers her memory when she's brought back after the what we call the reset. He does it to her again, and it sort of very briefly brings her back to the to the modern world. And I was so uh, excited that she had come up with this physical kind of little trigger moment. And but there were so many. I mean, Harry wrote the song that became the trigger song. He brought that into the process and it was, you know, something that I had imagined completely differently and then he brought that in and it became our theme and felt so perfect. Chris Pine understood that this character was a combination of, you know, like Tony Robbins and Keith Raniere of the Nexium cult and um, he was so great. And and Jordan Peterson he really understood this combination of people that he was basing him on. And so he kept coming up with like great little moments that, you know, were so additive. The other great thing is that I had a crew who were all really great storytellers and they came up with really interesting character beats. Maddie Labatique, our cinematographer, came up with the scene where Florence gets crushed by the wall. So, and I, that's so crazy. So crazy. And I think it's oftentimes people in, in, you know, every department, they have great ideas because they're spending so much time prepping a film and they sometimes don't feel comfortable sharing these ideas. But of course, like they're spending all this time marinating with the material and you're scouting together and everyone's dreaming yeah. together and reading the same things and watching movies as inspiration. And he was like, I have an idea. It's probably not good. And I was like, what, what is it? And he's like, I don't know. We could like, what's the wall crushes her? And I was like, that's a brilliant idea so for good. so many reasons. So we built that scene together. Our Ariane Phillips, our genius costume designer, came up with the idea of having Dita Von Teese at the gala scene. Yeah, I was going to ask you how she got involved with that. And yeah. it's all Ariane. And, and it was like such a wonderful moment to think like, oh, you're so invested in this on a personal level that you're that you're spending time coming up with these ideas. It's not just showing up to work and doing your job. It's everybody's it. baby. Yeah, it's that's, everybody's baby, and that's the best feeling. It's so cool. And I was, I, you know, one of, I mean, this is maybe such an obvious question because it's such a spectacle. It's, it's a, such a stunning thing to look at, I, especially, you know, being a cinematographer. I'm like, wow, this is like big. It's epic, you know. And um, there's like a couple questions I have about that. One being like how you, you know, the coordination between, Ariane and your and Kate Byron, your um, production designer, and the hair and makeup, and Maddie and you to to sort of did you have like color rules? You know, obviously it's the movie is very dependent on the different colors, but I just didn't know. I thought maybe I would see if there was sort of specificity to that because I try to do that too. Yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. It was funny because we had early on, we had a rule like nothing will be red. There will be no red. And then at one point, Ariane was like, what if they're all in red? Like all the men in these jumpsuits. The jumpsuit idea was such a uh, uh, late in the game kind of revelation of these bots that would be the workers inside the simulated world. And um, because we had built the palette to have no trace of red, then that choice really popped and became really powerful and we used it in different ways. But yeah, we had a lot of fun, this brain trust of departments coming together to create the palette and the rules that were very specific. And, you know, it was a lot of jewel tones. A lot of it was inspired by films from that era and thinking we wanted something that felt not totally obviously like technicolor in a in a inauthentic or inorganic way, but we wanted it to be, <clears throat> you know, opulent. 
We wanted it to be rich. We wanted the world to feel really vivid so that when you went to the modern world, you'd feel the drabness. We wanted the audience to feel a longing for the world of victory so that you'd then become morally confused. Yeah, it was a big contrast between those two worlds. And I think for, you know, it's kind of shocking when all of a sudden you start to see that little like fragment of modern clothing the yellow sweatshirt yeah, like you know that yellow you know the the little piece of like mustard color is very, something you haven't seen in the yeah. world so it's like that's that's wrong and you can kind of feel it even on a subconscious level and you see a flash of it you know that's wrong we also had a great colorist alex bickle who you know developed this awesome LUT with us and just like really brought it to life in a way that was so exciting and and he was so excited to be working with Maddie and like creating this film with him and and the you know getting the blacks as black as possible even though it's all digital yeah. but it was you know an homage to these films that obviously inspired it films like Vertigo um I mean a lot of Hitchcock as well as Rosemary's Baby and you know the list is very long but we wanted first and foremost for you to really feel the colors were all characters. There was also, you know, the landscape being so bright, you know, it was harsh, harsh sunlight, which by the way, went down at like 3 p.m. The sun would go down at 3 p.m. behind the mountains. It was a logistical challenge. But, you know, when Ariane said, let's use, a, let's have her in a black dress when she's walking out into that, you know, white salt flat desert and it would feel so graphic. And yeah. you know, she was like, it's Fellini. But it was, so again, graphic. everyone being so excited to create the the palette together. And yeah, the rules were, were strict in that way. Yeah. The, and the shots, I felt like, as you were saying, an homage to um, Hitchcock and those other sort of, I felt like it was it was nice because it sort of blended in. It was very, it was shot very classically in many ways. And, um, but because you weren't, I think in the, in the color palette, not hammering it so much to look, okay, we're doing period. It's, it worked because of what it really was, you know, what the story really was. And I saw a lot of, I mean, so many shots where I was like, that isn't, like they're all like a poster. How do you know? You can't even choose a poster shot. Really, it's pretty uh, crazy. Also, on a design level, like production designer Katie Byron came up with was able to build that house on stage in a way that was we had been told many times was impossible yeah. because of the glass walls of the house. We had to create that exterior section, which meant building a translate, and then figuring out can we, is the ceiling of this stage high enough to have a translate? Like it was really, really logistically difficult. Um, and I love that the whole movie seems to be a series of moments where we were told it was impossible and we just kept going, whether it was the translate or COVID or, you know, the release, anything. It's just been a matter of like pushing past impossibility. I mean, I think, well, I'm glad that you did. I think like you know, as filmmakers, we're used to making compromises and not, you know, just because everything every day, there's something that comes in the way, like just gets in the way of what you're doing. And also just the collaborative nature of it. Like, is there something, a compromise you had to make, like due to one of those things that actually in the end, you're really happy that it happened and it made it better? 
Oh yeah. I mean, um, there was that dinner scene, uh, that they have where she really tries to confront Frank. Um, we, Nick Kroll and my character were supposed to be in that dinner and Nick was having a baby and there, it was obviously during the pandemic. It was you know, a concern to have him there at that time when we were shooting that scene and he wasn't able to be there. I think he was also getting married. It was like there was a series of scheduling issues that we suddenly lost one of our main characters in the middle of the shoot. And it was such a clear opportunity to take us out of that scene, which added to the story because they've had this big argument the night before. So it was then much more meaningful to have Bunny and Dean, these two characters, not there. It also meant I could then be by the monitor watching that scene, which was much better. I mean, I truly only wanted to ever be by the monitor. I had so much fun acting with this amazing cast, but, you know, I just, my happy place is, is not, is my happy place is very much behind the camera. And I was really um, happy that I got to watch everyone's performances so closely. Whereas if I was in that scene, I think I would have been like darting around. It would have looked like my character was just really... I don't know, <laughs> heavily caffeinated, just like trying to stare at everyone. But I, but I think that was a, a moment we went from, oh my God, what are we going to do to, oh, this is the biggest gift. We kept referencing the Steven Spielberg story of what happened on Jaws when the shark broke and they panicked. And then he came up with the idea of just having the buoy, which is of course iconic and much more terrifying. So every time we hit one of these many obstacles, we'd say, what's the shark? What's the shark? Yeah, I mean that was great because it was so tense to not have to not have you guys there to already like it sort of made it so that when everything implodes it was just like, you know, you get to, she's getting pushed and pushed and pushed to the edge yeah, further and, further isolated yeah. and um yeah, sidelined and outcast. So I was going to ask you about the um challenging uh, something challenging that happened but I feel like we kind of know what those are unless there's something specific that you didn't cover but um I think what I'll go into is something that I wasn't expecting when I was you told me about this movie before you started shooting it which was that it's kind of an action film like (laughs) like the action sequences are incredible and your stunt coordinator um Tracy Dash and yeah, yeah. One so, of the only female stunt coordinators. She's also a grandmother, and it's one of those great stunt families where every generation is a stunt person, from like the little little kids to her. And she did Booksmart as well. We had many less stunts, but she is so fantastic. And I love love shooting action. Like after those weeks of shooting in the desert, I was like, oh, this is all I want to do. I just want to do car chases. I just want to blow stuff up. And it was a dream. The one thing I didn't realize before, and I learned my lesson, is that those old cars, of course, they max out at about 50 miles per hour. (laughs) So the first day we got there, I was like, yes, okay, like imagining just like a 110 mile per hour car chase. And I was like, let's go. And then the car just started like, and I was like, no, this can't be it. So then it was a lot of, you know, figuring out, uh, luckily there's nothing around. So we could kind of trick the eye with, you know, the, how fast we were moving in the, in the, our cars filming them to figure out how to make it look faster. The Corvette could go fast. So luckily our heroine was in the, the fast car, but the, the one, oh, one big surprise actually, that was a fun thing was that we realized at a certain point that the stunt guys who were going to double the husbands, the original end of the film was that all the husbands chased the women to try to prevent them from leaving. Right. And 
I was doubling all of them and it was tricky to find the right doubles. And then I thought, you know, why don't we just make the stunt guys, these, these operatives, these agents, these bots to go and chase them. They're much more terrifying. And then we don't have to double the guys. And it was an opportunity to let the stunt guys act. And they were so excited and they were so, so brave. And the things they were pulling off were, uh, as it always is, like really, really exciting and impressive. And it was uh, just the kind of decision that, you know, really yielded a much, much better movie. Um, But something that I think people often forget is like, oh no, the stunt people can also be, you know, in the film. And it's like, there's these, we also have a scene because of COVID in this bubble, we only had our community to pick from. It wasn't like you could bring many day players in. Um, There was a scene where Alice is getting electroshock therapy and we needed someone to play the nurses. And the two women you see are, one is a stand-in, she's Flo's stand-in, and the other is our head COVID nurse. And we just put them in hair and makeup and they were thrilled. But I I kind of love the opportunity to use the community around the film to be in the film. I think that was great. And I think in the case of the stunt guys, um, you know, kind of playing these bots, it kind of works too because they were scared. And when they're scrambling up the side of that mountain and everything, it's really creepy. I mean, the whole thing is so creepy and disturbing and, you know, I want to know, obviously, you know, you talked about some of the references and inspirations for the movie, but like, was there something when you first came across the story that you were like, I feel like I really personally need to tell this story. It will be cathartic for me or it's just, you know, a thing that I'm passionate about or, you know, is it just wanting to dive into a completely different world? I think it was a combination of really wanting to make a psychological thriller because I love them. And like comedies, you know, it's a process of um, misdirecting the audience. It's pulling the tension, tension and release like everything is, but taking them by surprise in much the same way as crafting a comedy. But I also was really taken by the concept um, we, we found this story by the Van Dyke brothers that um, had the very, very kind of the germ of this idea And we turned it into this film because I was really kind of trying to explore this notion I had of who is willing to actually disrupt the system that serves them. And it came from this conversation I randomly had with Gloria Steinem. And at this moment, like changed my life and is the reason for this film was right after Trump was elected. And I happened to be at this event And I went up to her and bothered her and I sort of fell at her feet. And I was like, Gloria, what are we going to do? Like just devastated. Like so many of us were really, really depressed. And she looked at me and she said, "Um, stop paying taxes. And I was like, I don't know. Can I do that? Is that allowed? I don't know. That seems extreme. I can't stop. I can't. I'm like a mom. I can't. What? Really? And she was like, that's the reason nothing will change. Because until you're willing to really stop participating in the system, the system continues. And I thought about that so much. And I was like, I want to tell a story about that. That's what I want to talk about. Who's the kind of superhero or superheroine who who is really willing to disrupt a system that is designed for them right. and or, or at least designed to make them think that it's for them? And I was also thinking a lot about narratives that we accept without questioning them. And so we kind of applied those topics to this to this framework of this story and developed it to really try to explore that. Could you create a world that is so seductive 
that even the audience is like, just stay, just, it's fine. Because that's what we all do all the time. Like we're so aware of how unjust our world is, but it's just so difficult to actually imagine truly disrupting it. Like only real revolutionaries do that. Um, so that was, that kind of felt like the North star that was pushing me through the whole thing was like really trying to pick apart like that tension between what we know is flawed and how much we still are comfortable with it and, and how, what motivates us there. Yeah. I think that that's a very, obviously very relevant subject matter, especially now where we're in a world, it's like the moment you know that something's not real, at least for me, it kind of feels, makes me feel dirty. Like it feels wrong, like almost like weirdly morally wrong. I don't know. It's just yeah. like, you yeah, can't you just think make about yourself it, it's like, believe it. You know? Right. And yet you think about what we're all kind of accepting every day. And then, you know, when certain, you know, obviously the movie is also about like female, like bodily autonomy and how, you know, this is something that we're now talking about in this very relevant way these days. But the idea of what we accept and what, slowly becomes our reality. I mean, obviously the not, nothing's very subtle in the film, but the not so subtle reference to the frog in boiling water, like that we have these boiling water shots. It's like, we are all slowly heating up until the point where, you know, laws are passed and rights are lost. And we find ourselves in situations that we can't believe, but it's because we have accepted to a certain extent, certain truths without really rejecting them. We have accepted narratives. We've forgotten our own power in so many ways. And it's like, how are we all complicit? How are we participating in something that we acknowledge is flawed? Yeah. I think that's a good question to ask ourselves as, as we kind of a depressing question, but one to chew on. Yeah. I mean, but it's like, if we, it's great to be able to express that kind of a message and do it in only the way that people, you know, people, people in this room can do, you know? Well, that's the thing, like movies allow you to do that. And, you know, especially science fiction, like that's why I love it so much. And that's, you know, with, you know, the Twilight Zone, what they always said, it was a way to talk about politics in a way that was really entertaining. And that, that people will listen. Yeah. It's like, we, I didn't want to make anything, um, a preachy, like overly simplistic feminist parable where like women are great and men are bad. Cause it's just like, seems kind of not worth it. It was like, right. can we try to make something that's a little more com- complex, but mostly, you know, just entertainment that allows for questions. And it can be as silly as, as some Twilight Zone ep- episodes, but still talking about things like abuse of power. But, but you know, that you can have, that's what film allows for, the opportunity to, we always call it a Trojan horse film. Like on the outside is entertainment, it's beautiful. But if you were, if you look inside, maybe there's more to be found. Well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of layers, <laughs> but we'll continue our discussion later. And um, I think we're out of time. Thank you all now. so much for sticking around. Thank and you. Enjoying this film. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thanks, Reed. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 